to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, and we will begin reading in verse 12. Gospel of John, chapter 12. When you got it, say so. And it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a, don a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when, they had, but, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain, Jews, certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and said to him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for what we celebrate in Palm Sunday, God. Thank you for what we celebrate in your death and your resurrection, what we celebrate remembering, Lord, how you saved us. Your grace, your mercy, the precious and holy blood of Jesus. God, thank you for all that you have done for us, Lord. I pray that in these next few moments as we are in your word, God, that you would speak to us that you would be glorified in our time together, Lord God. Captivate our minds and our hearts and remove distractions. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so we began a series a few months ago in the book of Jude, and Jude speaks about defending the faith or contending for the faith, and then we transitioned after those four weeks that we were in Jude. You know, Jude is one chapter, so you can only, you know, preach, you know, so long through it, but there's a lot to be said about defending the faith. And so Jude, you know, gave us the, the, the groundwork, laid the foundation for us thinking about defending the faith and um, thinking in this concept of lost and found, why defending the faith matters. And so as we're coming to the end of this, today's Palm Sunday, and so I was thinking, and you guys know me that, that have been here, for you that are here for the first time, you'll know this about me. I'm not a, a traditional kind of guy in the sense of I don't always preach a Palm Sunday message. There's only probably like two days that I, that, that, you know, two, two times a year that I'm super traditional and like Easter Sunday, I feel like we got to celebrate the resurrection. Amen. Yeah. 
I'm just saying. So, you know, I, I want to do that. I, I, I do that. And then, obviously, Christmas time, you know, we go through Advent. We started that a few years ago. And so those are the two times that, you know, I'm pretty liturgical, if you want to use that term. But nonetheless, I don't always do that. But as I was praying through, okay, Lord, how do you want me to end this series? I, I thought about the, the parallels of what's going on in the church today and what is and what is happening and what we see occurring in what we today call Palm Sunday. They didn't call it Palm Sunday then, right? They they it was a it was a day in the week and Jesus is entering in to Jerusalem for the final time before he's going to be crucified and it seems like this is a beautiful moment right like people are um, waving palm branches and it's exciting and the king is coming and but there's a problem here and so again we've been discussing the need to defend the faith and and contend for the faith and it not being optional and so I hope I mean my prayer is that you realize that this is not something that you can decide to do or not do like, this is not something that you can just say, well, someone else can do that. No, God has placed you in this earth among certain people to be a defender of the faith, to be one who contends for the faith. And I would say it this way, is that it is, it is not just not optional, but it is vital if the church is going to make the impact in the culture that it should as an extension of the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. It is not just not optional, but it is vital... For us to contend or defend the faith if the church is going to make the impact in the culture that it should as an extension of the kingdom of God. And what I think has happened to us, whether we realize this or not, is that we as the church have become so insulated, right? Like we're so used to just being among ourselves. We're so used to just building a building and getting comfortable in a particular area of the city. And we forget that we are supposed to be extending the kingdom of God everywhere that we are. That we are supposed to be expanding the kingdom that we're supposed supposed to be ministering to those who don't know Jesus and even encouraging the faith of others that are there, you know, and then we get so, you know, inundated with the PC culture being politically correct. And so, you know, we don't talk about politics. We don't talk about religion and those things are off, you know, uh, you don't, you don't, you just don't touch those things because those are untouchable subjects. And so how do we extend the kingdom? How do we become the kingdom extenders that God has called us to be. And it has to do with what we call discipleship. And so I want to tell you of a, of a meeting that I was in the other day. I was part of, a, or I'm, I'm, I am joining and becoming part of a cohort in Orlando. And the cohort is based around this one question. And it is, how can we reach men between the ages of 22 and 40? How can we reach men between the ages of 22 and 40? Because it's extremely important. And, and listen, I, you know, I, I, I am a person who understands how important it is for men to follow Jesus. How, how important it is for men to be serving the Lord. Because if you have godly men that are willing to follow Jesus, guess what those godly men are going to do? They are going to lead godly families. They are going to leave godly legacy. But if you ignore the 22 to 40 year olds you have a problem 
And so in the discussion, as we opened up the discussion, there was a pastor there, and he is the, the executive pastor. His name is Pastor Mike. And I'm going to say some things here that I'm just going to be honest with you. When I say these things, when I was sitting in your seat hearing him say these things, it was bothering me. I was very uncomfortable with some of the terminology he was using. Now, Pastor Mike, and I, I, I want to say this for context, and you'll know why when one of these points pops up, but he's a white guy. You know, he's a white pastor. He's the executive pastor of Orlando Grace Church, and so he is simply sharing his, his basically his thesis of as he's studying culture, as he's studying the church and what is happening within the church, he begins to present, and, and I, I titled it this because I don't remember exactly what he titled it, but it is the schism in American Christianity, the schism in American Christianity. And what he is saying is, and I've been talking about this for months, like since last year, you guys have been hearing me talk about division and division. There's so much division in the church around so many things. And what he concluded was this, is that there are basically six groups that are um, coming out more clearly than ever before. And of these six groups, and I walk and I walk through them, and, it, and it's not to say uh, in, in any particular way, but this is the or any particular order, but this is the order that he gave them in. So it's not like one group is bigger than the other, more important than the other. This is just how he he outlined it. So the first group is Christian nationalists. Christian nationalists. Anybody heard that term, Christian nationalists, lately? Nobody heard that term. Man, my goodness. I've been hearing this term. I don't like the term. But nonetheless. It is a term where, and the reason why I don't like the term is because it is, it is almost saying, and I'm not going to break this down for every one of them. I just want to point this out to you probably for a couple of these points that are probably the first two only. But the reason why I don't like the term is because it, it juxtaposes being a person who loves America and a person who loves Jesus like you can't do both. I have an issue with that because, I mean, I'm not like a super patriot. Hello, somebody. Right, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I wasn't in the military. I thank God for every person in here that has served, and those that are. I, I'm grateful because if it wasn't for their service, if it's not for their service, we would have problems. But I, but I love them. I'm, I'm grateful for America, especially when I look at other places. I'm like, man, praise the Lord that God has me here. Just saying, right? It's not. I mean, I, I know we we're, we have some historical issues. Amen. But I think we've worked through a lot of that stuff, right? And so I have a problem with the term, but nonetheless, this is something that is happening. And so, but it is, but it is true, right? I, I do have to say this. There are some people who, 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 who interlock their Christianity with their being American like way too much. Can, can, can we get an amen to that? And we're, and we're seeing that happening. And then this, and, and, and this group is, is coming forward. The second group that we see is mainstream white evangelicals. I don't like white, not because I have an issue with white, you know, but I don't like the term there. But again, I, I told you my, my friend, Pastor Mike, he's a white guy, so he, you know, he, 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 put, he put this out there. The reason why I don't like the, the, the part white is because it makes it seem like the only mainstream evangelical has to be white. It's not true. But that is what is being painted as the picture. And so it is, I, I, don't, I don't like it, but nonetheless, it's there. The third one is what we would call a neo-evangelical or a new revived evangelical. So someone, this would be me, right? Someone who is very much aligned with what an evangelical is. 
I believe in the fundamentals of the faith. I hold scripture as highest authority. I understand the mandate for us to be evangelists in the midst of this world. I realize that, man, we need to hold firm to truth. But, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't again, I'm not, I, don't, I don't interlock American, you know, being an American with being a Christian because it's not the same. And most of you in here, you know, and we had, we had to do a little thing and say, what do you think your church is? And I was like, I think we're probably like two, three-ish, you know, something like that in our beliefs. And I, I don't have the time to get into all this other stuff because we got like 50 verses to get through here on Palm Sunday. But I want to lay this foundation. <sighs> and then the fourth group that we have here is what is called ex-evangelical. I've, I've never heard that term until this time. But it's basically someone who would still say that they are a Christian but they have abandoned the, the title evangelical because of all of the baggage that comes with it. And you know what? Some of you may be there. Now, now, now this, this group is, is in the church. They love Jesus. They serve God. They, they worship God. And here's what happens with these two. And, and the, the, the last two that I'll talk about, they're not really Christian, but they have had some contact with Christianity. And this is what we see within the culture but this group here, the, the fourth group here, they, 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 they want to glorify Jesus. And, and what ends up happening is when you go from one, group one to group four, you have people that are way, and I, and I will say this clearly, you have people that are in group one that are way to the right. And when you move down to go to four, they move way to the left on a social level, politically, things like that. The, four, the fifth group there that, that, that we have is the de-churched. With some Jesus, right? With some Jesus. So they're, they're, they're not going to church anymore because I'm done with church because they're all politics and blah, 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 and they go through all that, right? They don't like the way the church is. They, they've bought into, they, li they listen to the wrong news. I'm just kidding, but no, seriously, they do. They're listening to the wrong voices. They're, they're listening to the wrong people, and so they're forgetting these things. And then the sixth group here, they're forgetting who they are. And then the sixth group is the de-church and de-converted. They're the ones that are simply saying, I'm done with church. I'm done. I, don't even believe that. I don't believe anything in the faith anymore. And so we have this group. Now, now this is why this really bothered me, because first I was looking at this, but then there was something that he said. I don't have this on the notes here. But what he said is happening is this, is that the church is splitting in such a big way that you would have. And you, so you see this group here where, you know, threes don't really want anything to do with ones. You see the list, right? Three and fours, they can't stand ones. They are not going to worship with ones. And guess what? Ones can't stand fours either. Hello. So what ends up happening is you have this schism in the church and you wonder what on earth is going on. Why is it that people that I was able to have conversations with, that we were able to dialogue, even debate, even disagree with, now all of a sudden we don't want to be around each other anymore. And I do believe firmly that COVID had a big thing to do with it because you know what COVID did? COVID was like, hey, we're not going to see each other. We're not going to be around each other for a couple of months. And then guess what? That's when things got really hot politically and things started happening. I mean, when, when the George Floyd murder happened, I mean, that triggered some stuff that began to amplify. And then all of a sudden, if you weren't like a four, oh man, you were definitely a one. If you were a three in the middle, right, and you were like trying to pull people together, man, it was tough. It's rough. 
And so we have this thing. So here's what happens. This is, this is the problem. The problem is that it creates certain types of churches, certain subsets of churches. And so this is what this looks like. So now we, are ch- we have churches that are type A churches, type A churches being ones and twos, right? So you have the, the product of the schism is it, it's creating certain types of churches. So you have a type A church. That's ones and twos, right? So ones and twos, we have it clearly. We have the Christian nationalists. We have the mainstream, right, evangelical. And so that's what we have, churches that are those, because those people will get along and they'll be good. Then you have type B churches, which are churches that are twos and threes. So mainstream, neo-evangelicals. That's core faith church. Just, I mean, that's, that's where we are, right? There may be a couple of, of threes, like people that are leaning toward the four or people that are leaning toward the one. But pretty much this is what's going to be present in our midst. That's just where we land on this. And then we have type C churches, which are just threes and fours. And they don't want anything to do. And, so, and what ends up happening is we have this division. I was uncomfortable with this. But it's true. It's what we're seeing happening in the church. It's what we're seeing occur within the church right now. And I, and I say this to my brothers and my sisters. The reason why this bothered me is because I realized that Jesus converted and called ones, twos, threes, and fours. He surely called those that were fives and sixes out of darkness into the light, and he brought them all to the cross. He didn't let them have their identity in anything else. And so what is the issue? That's the issue. What is the core issue? The core issue is this. The church is desperately suffering from an identity crisis, which is the result of an unbiblical form of discipleship. Let me say that again. The the, the core issue is the church is desperately suffering from an identity crisis. We don't know who we are. Am I a one? Am I a two? Am I a three? No, you're supposed to be a Christ. Christ follower. No, you're not supposed to be, uh, you know, a, a Christian nationalist. No, you're not supposed to be an ex-evangelical. No, 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 you're not supposed to be a neo-evangelical. I know that sounds really like godly. Oh, you're a revived evangelical. No, you're, you're, you're supposed to be a Christ follower. Your identity is supposed to be in Christ, in Christ alone. And the reason why this, this schism is, is, being, how, is being perpetrated and is, and, and is allowed to happen is because what? Because we're not calling people to the cross. We're not calling people to surrender to Jesus Christ. And here's the question. The question is this. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? That's the question. What does it mean to, when I first came to Jesus, I'll never forget coming to Christ, the guy who was the best man at my wedding, he was my, my mentor at the time, and I remember as we were having conversations, talking about who we were, it was, man, we're, we're Christ followers, and I was like, yeah, I like that. I didn't realize, you know, that, that <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, because people would I, would, I would, I was so passionate for Jesus, I couldn't shut up, I still can't shut up, obviously, hello. <laughs> But I'd be having conversations, and then someone would ask me, well, what are you? And I'd be like, I'm a Christian. And they're like, no, 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 but what are you? I'm like, I'm a Christian. No, no, but, but, but like, are you a Baptist? Are you a Pentecostal? No, 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 I'm a Christian. I mean, I go to, I went to a Pentecostal Assembly of God church, but I didn't identify, right? Come on now, we're all identifying now. But I didn't identify as a 
Pentecostal. I still don't identify. That's why we're non-denominational church, right? Because I don't identify with any of those things because I'm not any of those things because there's some things I love from the Presbyterian church. There's some things I love from the Pentecostal church. There's some things I love from the Baptist church. Come on now. And you know the things I love? The things that align with Scripture. But guess what? There's some things I hate about the Pentecostal church. There's some things I hate about the Presbyterian church. There's some things I hate about the Baptist church. You know what those things are? The things that I don't see that align with the Scriptures. Are you here? So here's, here's what I'm talking about today. It's a long introduction. Hallelujah. <laughs> it's Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week, so we're going to take our time to get into this. But here's what I want you to think about this morning. Our faith must be biblically defined if it is going to be effectively defended. Our faith must be biblically defined if it is going to be effectively defended. Our faith. Our faith must be biblically defined. We must have a biblical definition of what it means to be a Christ follower, of what it means to be a Christian. We cannot allow the culture, we listen, we cannot allow a cause, we cannot allow anything else to define what a Christian is. We have to make sure that we embrace a biblical definition of what a Christian is, of what it means to be a follower of Christ, so we can defend that faith. Because you know what the problem is? If I go trying to defend any one of those one, two, three, or four, guess what? I'm going to have a problem. Because I'm not pointing someone completely to Christ. We have a mandate and a call to defend the faith. And again, I want to make this clear because it is important for us to remember when I'm talking about defending the faith or contending for the faith, a lot of times we think about argument. And we think about what? We think about winning arguments. Do we not? When I think about defending the faith, I think about winning arguments, right? I think about winning, I, I think about that. That is what happens to us when we think about, you know what, I'm going to be someone who is going to contend, and automatically we think about a fight, we think about an argument, we think about winning in this particular area. That's what ends up happening to us. But the fact of the matter is, when I am talking about defending the faith, I am not talking about winning arguments. I'm talking about impacting culture. I'm not talking about making someone uh, know how much you know. I'm not talking about making someone feel, you know, like, man, you know what? You don't know what you're talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about impacting people's lives with the truth. I'm talking about having tough conversations about what it means to follow Jesus with those in the house as well as those outside. Remember, Jude's primary concern was not with the people outside. His primary concern was the people inside. His primary concern were those who were in the house that needed to hear the truth. And so the first thing I would ask you to repeat after me is this, say, a biblically defined faith, biblically defined faith must, go must go beyond, beyond external, formalities. external formalities. A biblically defined faith must go beyond external formalities. So again, when I was thinking about this, I saw the parallels of what is going on, the identity crisis that is occurring in the church was the same thing that was happening on this day that we know as this triumphal entry. 
And here's what we have, and I just want, we, we just finished reading verses 12 to 22, so I don't want to go and read through them again. I'll touch on some points there, but I do want you to look at verse 37, if you would. Verse 37 of chapter 12, and we are going to go all the way to verse 50, and we're going to run through this. I'm not going to break apart every single piece here that is in this text, but the narrative is important for us. Verse 37 says this. It says, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Now, 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 I need you to think about this contextually. We just saw Jesus, right? He was on this donkey, on this colt, and he is coming into Jerusalem. The people are taking palm branches, and they are placing them before him, and he is entering into this city, and they are crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, they're crying out, Lord, save us. They are declaring Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. They are saying he is the king of Israel. They are basically enthroning him in this moment as you're seeing in the beginning of this. And yet we get to verse 37, and what does it say? They didn't believe. Many of them did not. Oh, but wait a second, but they were throwing palm branches, were they not? They were crying out, Hosanna. Sounds kind of like church. Hello, somebody. <laughs> we are together. We are worshiping. We are singing. We are praising. We are magnifying and honoring God Almighty. The question is, do you really believe? Do you really believe in this Jesus? Do you really believe who he is? Do you really trust who he is? It was a glorious moment. It was a worshipful moment. It was almost blasphemous. If you look at the other accounts, they tell Jesus, how can you let these people say these things about you? What did Jesus respond to them? If they don't, the rocks will cry out. What was Jesus saying? It's time to come. His time had come. His revelation time had come. The time for them to know who he was had come, and yet they were people that were there that they didn't believe. It's, the, it's, it's this, it's a, this identity crisis. What we have to realize is that when we're talking about defending the faith, it's all about Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is. That's, that's what this is about. It's about who Christ is. Jesus comes into Jerusalem again, riding on this donkey's colt. He is there. I mean, and, and, and they are seeing this, this Jesus come through. He allows them, and the problem is that they didn't fully understand what was going on. Remember, he wasn't riding the white horse. He's going to ride that in Revelation. And for those of you that know, we're going to get into Revelation after Easter. We won't jump to chapter 19, but chapter 19 in the book of Revelation is pretty impressive. It's pretty scary when you think about it in the sense that if you don't know Jesus, it's scary. If you're not, if you're not you know, like with him, you know, if you're not part of his crew, it's a scary moment to consider this rider on the white horse that's bringing judgment. I mean, he's going to come. He's not coming like, you know, humble servant Jesus, meek and mild. He's coming to lay the smack down on the nations that have rebelled against him. That's the Jesus that is coming. And that is what Israel was waiting for. They were waiting for that Jesus on the white horse to come in. That's why they were crying, Hosanna, Lord, save us, King, save us. Oh, it's it must be time. We heard about this resurrection of Lazarus. You've done things that nobody else has done. Oh, my goodness, the king is here. They were ready. They had Jesus in the box, and Jesus is like, no, no, I'm not in the box. I'm coming as a servant savior to be crucified, to, to lay my life down for you. See, church, here's the thing. Our faith must go beyond the external formalities. 
We cannot just be throwing the, the proverbial palm branches at Jesus' feet. We can't just get in the groove of singing songs. We can't just come to church. We can't just go to small groups. We can't just give our money. But we have to go deeper in our devotion to Christ. And here's, here's the problem. The problem is Americanized Christianity wants the benefits of Christ. We want the benefits of the king's reign without surrender to the king's order. We want the benefit. We, listen, we want Jesus to bless our marriage. We want Jesus to save our children. We want Jesus to do A, B, C, D. Every promise we see in this word, we know them. We're quoting scripture over our I mean, come on now. We want God to do all kind of stuff. The question is, are we surrendering to him as Lord? Are we yielding to him as God? Are we submitting to him as king in our lives? I've been reading for some of you that, that, that have had a couple of conversations with me in the last few weeks. I was reminded of a book that I read a long time ago. It's entitled God's Favorite House. And in this book, there is a, a um, recollection of the Hebrides revivals. That was like in the 1940s, I think it was like, like 1942 or something like that. To not, it was a four or five year thing that happened over in Scotland. Probably one of the most, to me, one of the most amazing examples of what I'm praying for. What I'm believing God for. And, and, and what, I, what I come to understand is, man, if we want a move of God, if we want to see the kingdom of God, it can't just be with, you know, a 30-minute prayer here or there. It can't just be with a little bit of church attendance. There has to be a real surrender to the lordship of Jesus. There's a short book that I read. You can read this book in an hour. It's a very short book. I think it's like maybe 60 pages or something like that. And, it's, and I don't know the title of it, but it, but it, just, it just talks about the Hebrides revival and what happened. It just talks about what God did. And listen, for some of you that, you know, you hear revival and you get nervous because you're like, man, that might be the Pentecostal coming out of him. Let me tell you something. <laughs> the guy who was the main preacher in this Hebrides revival, his name was Duncan Campbell. And you know what he was? He was a Presbyterian. There was no speaking in tongues. There was no one shaking and baking. There was no one. I don't, listen, I speak in tongues just so you know. Don't get it twisted. And, I, and, I, and I, I believe in all of the gifts of the Spirit for sure. And Duncan Campbell, as a student of God's Word, he was there. And, and people were having visions and moments where they were, as the book of Acts says, right, they were in these trances where God was speaking and giving them revelation. But when I tell you revelation, it was stuff like, hey, you know, Duncan, and one thing that, I mean, this just messed me up. These two women, they were praying women. They were two sisters in this. And I, I'm, I'm going to move on quick from this. I only got 24 minutes. What else? That? I got 24 minutes. We're good. Okay, 24 minutes is going to go like this. But here's, here's, here, there's these two sisters that are, that, are, that are part of this revival. One of them is blind, and they're, they're praying. And they, they, they ask um, Duncan to go and to preach in a, in a particular aisle or island. And he didn't want to go there. He was like, nah, man, I, I don't, I don't want to go there. And the sister that was blind heard his voice when he was saying that, and she looks in his direction, and she says to him, Duncan, if you were as close to God as you needed to be, you would want to go. I was like, hallelujah. I'm like, man, how many times have I not wanted to go to do whatever it was? And maybe it wasn't, it wasn't me. It was that I wasn't close enough to the Lord. 
The story doesn't end there because these ladies had been praying and interceding and they, and they had a vision of this particular island. She said, there's seven men that are going to give their lives to Christ and you will have a church there and God is going to do something. And sure enough, he goes over there and, he be, and, and when he, he preaches, and I, and I think he couldn't even preach. It was tough to preach. And there was a brother that had a burden to pray and he said, hey, will you just pray? And this brother got up. He started to pray. The Holy Spirit moved in this place. Those seven men got saved and God began to move. Listen, the thing that was going on over there was because of a church who understood their identity. It was a church who understood their calling to be extensions of the kingdom of God. There was a church that was submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Core faith and even our guests here today, I call you, if you are a believer, submit to the lordship of Jesus. Your life is not your own. You do not belong to yourselves. Your life is not just about adding some Jesus and get things that you want. It is about a life of surrender and submission to the almighty God that he may bring about his works and his wonders today because guess what he hasn't changed he is the same yesterday today and forevermore and this is what I believe firmly as long as we have breath in our lungs God is still at work if if we have breath in our lungs God is still at work it's not just about the external stuff it's not just about looking Christian. It's not just about knowing certain scriptures. It is about surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The second thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say a biblically defined faith understands glorification. A biblically defined faith understands glorification. Look at verse 23 with me. Remember the the Greeks were there. They were, they were apparently truth seekers. They're, they're present during this time of feasting. It's the time of the Passover that is occurring. And people are coming into Jerusalem by the droves. They're there to worship, which is, you know, why we see later on when the Holy Spirit comes in the book of Acts, there's so many people that are present. And so in this moment, the Greeks asked to speak to Jesus. And when they asked to speak to Jesus, instead of Jesus like bringing them in and sitting down and asking them what they needed to know, this is what Jesus does. Jesus goes into one of these sermons or sermonettes that I'll, I'll call it, and he, and he says these words, but Jesus answered them. So he's answering Andrew. He's answering his disciples. And, and, and apparently, I would assume, this message goes to these men as well, these Greeks that are there. He said, the hour has come, listen to these words, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, if we closed our Bible right there, we'd think, yes, it's good stuff. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In other words, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be honored. Should be, that's what we think when we think about glorification. But look at the next verse and what he says. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Why would he start this sermon to these guys? These guys apparently wanted to hear from Jesus. And Jesus goes and he tells and he begins to talk about a, a, a wheat, a grain of wheat dying. Why, why are we talking about death here? Oh, there's a reason why we're talking about death. 
He says, he who loves his life will lose it. Now, now, now we're getting more specific. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then he gets real specific. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. You hear the specifics of what Jesus is saying? It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, death. What does he do? He points out for us that, that, that these, to these people, he talks about the way of glorification. You know what the way of glorification is? It's death. It's hatred of one's life. It's loss of one's life. It is servanthood. It is following Jesus. Church, church this is the definition of Christianity. This is what we are supposed to be calling people to. It is a life that is lived for the glory of God, not the comforts and the temporal glories of this world. Hello. This is what Jesus begins to communicate. The biblical way to glorification is what? It's the cross. Oh, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. We don't, we, we, don't, we don't want to be called to suffering for Jesus. Come on, we want the good stuff. Come on now. We want the, we want the peace, the shalom of God in our lives. Amen, right? Lord, why is my, why is my home so, so, so tumultuous? Why is there so much turmoil in this place? Why, why is my family so crazy? Glory to God. Hallelujah. <laughs> why, why are things not working out the way? Why is my heart always broken? Wait, 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 wait a second. Glorification brings you through the cross. Glorification brings you through death. Glorification brings you through suffering. That's, that, that's, that's the way that Jesus is calling. The reason why there's this schism in the church is because we're not calling people to death. We're not calling people to the cross. We're not calling people to lay their lives down. Well, you might because you hear me all the time. Come on now. But listen, I can even call you for, you're like, really? Yes, I can call you further to death. Hello. I can call you further to laying down your life. I can call you further away from your sin, further away. From, people don't want to hear that. That's okay. Jesus, you know, I always say this. Whenever the multitudes are there, Jesus always preaches the hardest sermons. The multitudes were there. There were multitudes who were present, multitudes who were, who, who, were, who were coming because they heard about what? They heard about Lazarus. And they were like, man, you, you rose Lazarus from the dead. So they started coming again. They're in Jerusalem. They're ready to do their feasting time. And they think, man, it is time for the king to rise up. Jesus goes on, verse 27. Now my soul, look what he says. He just told them, you'll be with me. If you're going to serve me, you'll be with me. If you're going to serve me, you will follow me. You will be where I am. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But, from, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, the voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now, and now is the judgment of the, listen to this, now is the judgment of this world. 
Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, listen to this, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Now, you and I reading this, right, we don't have any clue what Jesus is saying. If we don't have the next verse, we're like, what does he mean? If I am lifted up? Like, we don't know. We know now because the next verse tells us this he said, signifying by what death he would die. But look at what the people said. The people answered him, we have heard that the law, from the law, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You know what? They, they understood clearly what he was saying. He was talking about being lifted up in crucifixion. He was talking about dying. And they're like, wait a second, you don't have to die. You can't die. We just said you are the king. You are supposed to be here forever. You cannot die. And Jesus is like, wait a second, I got to die before you all can have life. I have to lay my life down before you can experience the life that I came to offer you. What does Jesus respond to them? I love this because Jesus doesn't go back and do what he's done for the last 11 chapters. Argue with them and try to teach them and try. No, this is what Jesus does. He said, a little while longer, the light will be with you. He is that light that he's talking about. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and look at this, and departed and was hidden from them. This is his last words to the crowds. He's like, man, I done told y'all I'm the light. I've done signs for you. I've done wonders for you. I have, I have communicated truth for you. I have made it abundantly clear that I'm sent of the Father. I have made it abundant. He's going to make it clear. You know, again here, he, he's going to wrap this up real nice in a bow for us. But what he does, he's like, I've already said all this stuff to you. You know what? He's like, I'm out. Y'all are not listening. You guys are not hearing what I am saying. But he's saying, but I am the light that you are supposed to be coming to. Jesus came to do what? He came to liberate us from judgment. As truth is proclaimed, the light is shining, pointing people to what? Pointing people to Jesus. Church, I go back to our list. It is imperative that we call people to Christ, that we call, when we're talking about defending the faith, that we call them to the cross, that we let them know what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Listen, it means that I am submitting my life to him. That's what it means. It means that I am acknowledging that I cannot save myself, that I need salvation, that I need deliverance. Oh, yes, God is showing you his love, and he's showing it to you most clearly by what he did on the cross. He doesn't want to leave you in your sin. He doesn't want to leave you in this judgment. Notice Jesus doesn't have an issue talking about judgment. He is communicating this. But here is why this is so very important for us. It is that we are pointing people to the cross, not to causes. Hello. That we are pointing people to the cross, not to causes. And that we as Christians keep running to Christ, pointing people to Christ. Because if we do not, the cause will become our savior and the cause will become our religion. Are you here? Well, how does this tie into Palm Sunday? Those people had a cause. They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted to be the leaders again. And they had a promise that God was going to raise up a Messiah, a Savior, the King of Israel. They had a cause. The cause was not the same cause as Christ, though. Jesus was calling them to the cross, not their cause. He was calling them, check this out. He was calling them out of their cause to the cross. That's what he was doing. And church, if we're going to be faithful defenders of the faith, that is what we must be doing.
is calling people to the cross, call, calling people to turn to Christ. The third thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, a biblically defined faith, biblically defined faith is belief, is belief rooted, in truth, rooted in truth, in proof, in truth and in a person. A biblically defined faith is rooted in truth and proof and in a person. Again, I go back to verse 37 and we'll read this and then we'll wrap this up. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the Lord or, or, or the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now we read those words, right? And it seems like Jesus doesn't want them to believe. It's not the case. If you look at the context, you go back to Isaiah, you realize what? That God had been extending his arm of mercy to these people over and over and over again. If you look at the book of John, you go back and read the gospel of John. There are seven signs that Jesus does, beginning with the sign of the water turned to wine. You know, people want to argue about alcohol and all that kind of stuff. Using that, that wasn't the point of that miracle. Hello, somebody. The point of that miracle was the first sign that Jesus did in the book or the gospel of John to show who he was. That's what it was about. It was, he was beginning to show who he was. And, and the purpose of this, it wasn't, now listen to me, it wasn't just a miracle. Miracles are not just to make people go wow. Miracles are signs to point people to God Almighty. These seven signs that Jesus did, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, all of that was for one purpose. I'm calling you to myself. Turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellion. Turn from your disobedience. And yet, they wouldn't. Israel, who are the people who are in this context, would not turn. But do you know how many people in our days will not turn? No matter what Jesus does, no matter what they hear of God, they will not turn. Not because God doesn't want them to, but because they choose not to. And you know what God does at some point when you continue to rebel and reject and deny and disrespect, God says, okay, I'll give you over to that then. That's what you want. It goes on to say this. Jesus says, verse 42, nevertheless, even among the rulers. See, look at this. You go from verse 37 where there's no believers to verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers... Many believed in him, and this has to be Jewish rulers, because they cared. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. You know, like Nicodemus. You remember that guy, chapter 3 of the book of John, Gospel of John? Nicodemus brings Jesus at night because he can't have a conversation during the day. You know that guy, right? Hey, man, tell me about this. Like, I hear you teaching. Like, you're really saying some stuff, but we got to talk about this at night because I can't let anybody know I let you in my house now. People were believing but they wouldn't confess. There's a problem. There's an issue. 
when you're believing but you're not confessing because you're denying who Jesus is, right? Verse 4, he goes on to say this, they would not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Church, this is the epitome of identity crisis. They, they believed who Jesus was. They saw the signs. They heard his teaching. They knew that he was the Messiah to come, and yet they cared more about man's approval than God's. Therefore, they wouldn't, call, they, they, they wouldn't confess. We do the same thing. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't, we don't want to lose anyone. We don't, want, we don't want people not to want to be around us anymore. So, you know, we're, we, can't, we can't call them to repentance of this thing. We can't call them to repentance of that thing because, well, it's not that bad. Oh, if it's sin, it's bad. If it's pointing people away from Jesus, it is a problem. He goes on, verse 44, then Jesus cried out and said, so, so, so listen, when y'all hear me crying out, I'm, I'm just aligning with Jesus, amen? <laughs> Bishop, you're loud. Yeah, yeah, I know. Jesus was too. Right here it says it. It says he, in other words, he lifted up his voice. His, his last communication to the crowds, to the group. And he is lifting his voice and he is saying, He who believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should abide, should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. He who rejects me and does, does not re receive my words has that which judges him. The, world that I, the word that I have spoken will judge him in that last day. You hear Jesus talking about judgment again. He's saying, listen, I, I'm, I'm not going to judge them. This word is going to judge them. This is what's going to judge us. It's his words. His words that we've heard, that we have rejected, that we have denied, that we have rebelled, or that we have responded to in faith. That is what is going to judge us. He says, he who, uh, verse 49, for I have not spoken of my, on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. He speaks of eternal judgment, and he also speaks of everlasting life. What does God want to offer us? Everlasting life. Why are we defending the faith? Because of everlasting life and everlasting judgment. Because the words of Christ offer people deliverance. That's what the gospel is about. When we partake of communion, that's what we're reminded of. The eternal work of Christ that he came, he died, he laid his life down, and he rose again to deliver people from eternal condemnation and free them into eternal exaltation and glory with him. That is the glorification that Jesus wants for us. He says, therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Despite the signs Jesus performed, they wouldn't believe. They didn't believe. They didn't want to believe the crowd. That's the reason why in a couple of days the crowd is going to yell, crucify him. They went from palm branches to crucify him. They went from Hosanna to crucify him. Identity crisis was going on, which is the same thing that we're seeing in our day. As followers of Christ seeking to share the faith, we cannot be ashamed of who we represent. 
But we must ensure that we are representing him faithfully. Church, and I say this again, and I go back to this list, and this, this is going to be, uh, 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 it's going to sound political and whatever. It's okay. I, I, I'll deal with that. But we cannot get sucked into right-wing or left-wing activism as our banner. That cannot be our thing. That cannot be our thing. We, can, we, we cannot become just staunch conservatives over here, and, and that's our banner. Wait a second. We're Christ followers first. I challenge you, listen, my conservative friends, I'm with you. I'm a, I, listen, I have no shame in telling you I'm a conservative guy. But I want you to know when you look at conservatism as a whole, it is not all Christianity. It is not all biblical. Look, look, look it up. Open your Bible. I tell you this. Open your Bible and see, okay, does this align with it? No, wait. Same thing on the left side, my friends. On the left side, activism, social justice. Oh, wait a second. All that's built. Yep, there's some biblical truth to that. Not the way that we want to embrace it. That cannot become our banner. Christ has to be our banner or we're just like these people here. We're crying out, Hosanna. We're crying out, Lord, save. We're crying out, Lord, deliver. We're crying out, Lord, this, Lord, that. And yet, when it comes down to it, we're not defending the faith. We're defending a, a cause. The eternal perspective of both condemnation and salvation must remain part of our burden and our conversation with others about Jesus. Listen, this isn't about getting people to church. This isn't about getting people to pray a prayer. This is about people being delivered from the eternal wrath of God. This is about people knowing that they are loved. And the reason why they know they are loved is because of the cross. But if we point them to anything else, then we're hindering them from coming to the Savior that we are supposed to be committed to. And so here's my closing question for you. Are you living the biblical definition of the faith? Are you living the biblical definition of the faith? A faith that is about living for the glory of God. Not for the temporal comforts, not for the temporal glory that this world offers us. Are you living that? And listen, I say this to you as one who has had to repent before God, who has had to ask the Lord for forgiveness, who has had to humble himself before God, because I think on some level, yes, I'm living that faith, but then there's another part of me that gets caught up in causes and other things, and I can't let those things. Because you know what happens? Here's what happens, church. When we are not constantly coming to the cross, when we are not constantly humbling ourselves before the king, these causes become real appealing because we feel like we're doing something. Are you here? We feel like we're making a difference, whether it's on the right wing or the left wing. It doesn't matter. We feel like we're making a difference in culture. But I need you to understand the greatest difference the culture needs comes by the power of the cross. And so... If you're honest and you say, man, I have not been living that cross life. I haven't been living that life of sacrifice, that life of surrender. I haven't been living that life of yieldedness to the lordship of Jesus. And there's just areas that you know today is that day for you to repent of that. It's a great week to start. This is Holy Week, hallelujah. 
It's a great week to keep you focused in on Jesus. I assure you, you're going to have massive devotionals that are going to be coming to your inbox. You're going to be hearing about all the things Jesus did. You have opportunities. If you haven't signed up for the Seder meal, I encourage you to do that on Thursday. Uh, We're going to get together. We did it different this year. We're going to do a Thursday Seder meal. Gather together. We're going to be at East Coast Believers, and we're going to. They're going to host it for us there. We're going to come together and and remember what happened in that last supper where Jesus was and what that really symbolizes. And then on Friday, we're going to come together here for the Tenebrae service. For those of you that have been part of that, I mean, it's a beautiful moment of, of just reflection and thinking about the last seven words of Christ on the cross. And then obviously, we gather together on Sunday to celebrate his resurrection. But listen, if you can say like me, man, I'm falling short in this area. I need to repent in this area. I need to, I need to, I need to humble myself. If that's you, then now's the moment for you to do that. So I ask you to bow your heads right where you are. I ask you to humble yourself before God. I ask you to recognize where it is that you need to repent, where you need to turn from your compromise or half-hearted devotion when it comes to living a sacrificial life for the Lord. Lord, we humble our hearts before you in this moment. And we acknowledge your holiness. We acknowledge your righteousness. We acknowledge you are God and you are God alone. And Lord, today we just, we we humble ourselves. Lord, I humble myself before you as one that realizes that, God, I can surrender more. I can sacrifice more. I can lay my life down more. Forgive me for thinking my life is my own. Forgive me for thinking my money is my own. Forgive me for thinking my property is my own. Forgive me for thinking my time is my own, God. You own it all. And so help me to align with you that I would point others to you, that I would lead others to you, God. Thank you for your great mercy and your great grace, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to partake of communion. If you do not have communion as I do not.